The risen Jesus said to his disciples these words. This is recorded in Luke 24. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Notice where in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So Jesus says that we should find him in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus teaches us to go back to the Old Testament and to look for him on every page. So in uh, today's installment of our teaching series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, we have come to what I would say is the most challenging uh, part of this series, and that is how do we find Jesus in the Law of Moses? The Law of Moses, or the Writings of Moses, or sometimes you might hear the, the term Torah. And this is really referring to the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books that Moses wrote. And if you've read those five books, you've read a lot of law. And some of the laws that we see in the Old Testament law, in the Old Covenant laws, uh, some of them are like, yeah, that's, that's a good law. That makes sense. Uh, that would be good for today. But then there's other laws that we look at and it's like, man, that is just weird and random. Um, how do we see Jesus in the weird and random? When I was a kid growing up, um, our family went to Sunday school every Sunday, went to uh, church as well. Sunday school was at 10 o'clock, church was at 11 o'clock. And uh, here's a picture of me as a little gaffer, uh, all dressed up. This is a Sunday morning ready for Sunday school. And these were, this was kind of the normal attire for our family heading off to Sunday school. And so I've got the, uh, the tie and the vest and the jacket with the crest on it there. And uh, man, I look like a, like a, like a Shriner in training or something there. Here's, a, here's another picture of, uh, of me again, along with my siblings. I'm the youngest of seven. And it uh, looks like the same jacket, but this is, uh, looks like bow tie day for the boys. And here we are uh, Sunday morning, ready to head off to Sunday school. And we were possibly gonna walk. Uh, we often did that. It wasn't all that far to our church or we were gonna pile into the 1963 Pontiac station wagon in the background there. My father would eventually see the light because his next car was a 1968 Ford ranch wagon, followed by a 1972 Ford Galaxy. Uh, then he added to that a 1974 Ford F100, and he drove that for a long time and uh, replaced it with a 1990 Ford uh, Bronco. Uh, we went to Sunday school and church, I would say 52 Sundays a year. Um, might have been a snow day every, you know, uh, maybe once a year, something like that, but uh, we were there every week. So as a kid, man, I, I learned, and I don't wanna say anybody taught me this, but I learned as a kid growing up in Sunday school, wearing, you know, fancy attire, I learned how to feign piety while at the same time being a jerk. 
as I was a kid in Sunday school, I was a real jerk. Um, years after this, uh, so certainly when I was older than what appears in, in the, the picture, uh, maybe I was maybe 11, maybe 12 years old, uh, in Sunday school, we had a teacher who was really lovely. Uh, she was an older woman, and she was, a, she was an excellent Sunday school teacher. Any Sunday school superintendent or any kids pastor would be delighted to have this woman as, or even multiples of her as part of their uh, team and teaching team. She was really, really terrific. She would write us cards um, to, to the kids and um, uh, just to encourage us and things like that. She, and, and she was really a teacher, even though she was an, an older woman, she was really ahead of her time in the sense that she would say, um, you know, kids, if you've got questions that you want to talk about, you know, we can talk about those questions here. Or if you have verses of the Bible that you're, you know, curious about or want to talk about or talk about the meaning, you can, you can bring those Bible verses here. So she was like ahead of her time in the sense that she wasn't, you know, just stuck to the curriculum. She, um, she was really interested in having conversation with the kids. And so I recall specifically one Sunday where I completely feigned um, piety and was actually a real jerk because I went to Sunday school in my little suit and tie as a maybe 11, 12 year old armed with some verses that I was going to read. And there had been some older kids who had helped me uh, determine which verses I would read on this day, but I knew exactly what I was doing. Here's the verses that I read in Sunday school that day. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. Now, I read this out of the King James back in the day, which had some also some colorful descriptive terminology in here. And of course, as I'm reading this, I'm just straight faced and looking as pious as all get out. And meanwhile, the kids in the class are like giggling and, and uh, shaking um, with laughter. And basically, you know, my question was, as, as the little jerk that I was in that moment, was basically saying, you know, what, it, what is it about crushed testicles that uh, God seems to have a, a problem with, do you think? And of course, how am I going to get in trouble? Because I'm reading the word of God, right? Well, what if, what if I came to you and I, and I read these verses to you and I said, what, what is the deal with this? Why, why is this in our Bible? How is this important? How am I supposed to live this out? And how do I see Jesus in this? You know, one of the things I think I've come to learn, I think, is that as followers of Jesus, we've got to have a sense of humor. We can't take ourselves too seriously. We can't get offended every time 
culture or the world kind of pokes fun at us. We're pretty easy targets for poking fun. And if we got offended every time that happened, we'd be like offended all the time. And one of the ways that our culture kind of pokes fun at Christians and at the church is because of the Old Covenant law, these Old Testament laws that to many seem just totally weird and totally random and even, you know, oddly specific and even discriminatory as we read them. So, you know, we've got to learn to, um, A, have an answer and understand what's going on here, but B, you know, we've got to not take ourselves too seriously. As I was doing some reading in Leviticus in, in preparation for today, I came across this verse. This is Leviticus 20 and the 27, and it just struck me funny in the moment. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says, A man or a woman who is a medium shall surely be put to death. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm a medium. Um, fortunately, my wife is a small uh, but I'm a medium, so this is a problem for me. Uh, obviously, I'm joking. We can't take ourselves too uh, seriously. Um, you know, one of, the, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, 1975, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is basically a movie that does an awful lot of poking of fun at uh, Protestant Christianity, and particularly poking fun at the uh, Old Testament laws. And there's this one scene, um, it's about the holy hand grenade of Antioch, and they read out of the Book of Armaments. And uh, I've, I've seen the movie many times. I've probably seen that clip, like on YouTube, probably a hundred times. I think I laugh every single time. So, we're in this series about finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And so what we want to do is think about Old Testament law. We want to think about these laws and we want to ask some questions. Why are they there? How do we live them out? Um, and how do we see Jesus in them? Pastor Dave read uh, some verses from Colossians chapter 2 a few moments ago. And I just want to reread uh, a, a couple of these verses. Paul writes, Therefore... Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So this is, this is Paul, and uh, we want to see that he is writing to a New Testament church about Old Testament law. All of these things that he's writing about in this verse are found in the Levitical law. So Paul is basically saying, hey, don't let anybody judge you. Don't let anybody bring division into your group by what you eat or drink. In other words, by whether you keep kosher or whether you don't keep kosher. Or with regard to a religious festival. Of course, in the Old Testament laws, there's all kinds of religious festivals. And so Paul's saying, don't let anybody judge you. Don't let anybody divide your group by whether or not you keep these festivals, whether you observe them or whether you don't observe them, or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Don't divide, uh, don't let the group be divided uh, from one another over those things. And Paul goes on to say, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
So shadow versus reality, shadow versus substance. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the substance. Jesus is the real thing. Jesus is the flesh and blood reality. It's Jesus who is the one who uh, reveals to us the heart of God. And so Jesus casts a shadow back into history. And just like shadows, you know, we can look at a shadow and we can get a sense of the general outline of something, but you don't, you don't get the detail of that thing until you look at what it is that's actually casting the shadow. Here's a, here's a, uh, a shadow, uh, you can kind of tell it's a, it's a shadow of a, of a cactus, uh, but it's not until you look at the actual cactus that you can see some of the oddity and the, and the detail um, of this thing that is actually casting the shadow. Here's, a, here's an interesting shadow. It looks like the word high. You can get a sense of the outline, but it's not until you look at the actual sign and see the detail or the reality or the substance of what it is that's casting that shadow. Here's a shadow that looks like uh, looks like a piano keyboard almost. And um, you, you can get a sense of the outline and the design, but it is so helpful to look and say, oh, it's, it's a railing or a fence or whatever um, that is. You, you need to be able to look at the substance, at the reality to, to see in detail what it is that um, is producing the shadow. And so I think, you know, what Paul is helping us to see here is, is this, that, that what we clearly see in Christ supersedes what we think we see in the Old Testament law. What we clearly see in the reality of Christ, in the substance of Christ, what we clearly see as we look directly at Christ supersedes what we think we see of Jesus in the shadows, in the shadow that Jesus casts. Sometimes we uh, can look at a shadow and we can actually be mistaken about what the object is that is casting the shadow. Here's a, here's a shadow. It looks like, a, I don't know, it looks like a rabid hyena or something like that, but it's actually being cast by quite a normal looking, I'm sure, friendly, lovely uh, dog. And so, you know, Jesus invites us to find him in the Old Testament law and that we can see him there in shadows. But we need to recognize that what we see of Jesus in the shadows of the Old Testament law are not going to be as specific and as detailed as when we look directly at Jesus himself. And so I think, I think that makes sense. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says these words. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Well, what does it mean for us? that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Well, I think there's kind of a principle that uh, we can grab onto. And the principle is basically this. When we follow Jesus, it's as though we are following the intent of the law. When we follow Jesus, it's as though we are following the intent of 
of the law. Let me say that one more time because I want us to I want us to grab that principle because I'm going to contradict it in just a second. When we follow Jesus, it's as though we follow the intent of the law. It's as though we follow the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, the intent of the law. We follow the intent of the law when we follow Jesus. He's come to fulfill it. Jesus goes on and and says, For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So here's the contradiction, okay? It's like, oh, okay, I guess he's not just talking about intent. He's talking about every dot, every dash, every tiny stroke of the pen in the law to check off every single box. It seems like Jesus is saying that uh, the letter of the law will continue until everything is accomplished. And when is everything going to be accomplished? Well, it seems like uh, that's going to be when heaven and earth disappears, which seems like a long time away, right? So he's saying the letter of the law will continue until everything is accomplished. So it sounds like, oh, we better get used to this letter of the law business. We better get good at the, at the, dot, at the dots and the dashes and the tiny strokes of the pen and the box checking of the letter of the law. Well, this phrase, until heaven and earth disappear, is apocalyptic language. We said a few weeks ago in this series that whenever we read the Old Testament, we want to learn to read it literally. We want to read the Old Testament literally, which means we want to read it as literature. So that when you're reading the Psalms, for instance, you want to read the Psalms like poetry because that's what it is. But you don't read poetry the same way that you read the history Uh, say, in the book of Numbers. And you don't read history the same way that you read prophecy. And you don't read prophecy the same way that you read, say, the wisdom literature of Proverbs. We want to learn to read the Bible literally. This phrase, until heaven and earth disappear, is apocalyptic language. And we want to understand it and read it as such. This is like Jesus saying, there's going to be an earth-shattering event. All right. And we use that phrase sometimes. But when we use that phrase, uh, an earth shattering event, that really is apocalyptic language. But it's not as though the earth is literally going to be shattered by the earth shattering event. And the heavens will not literally disappear. But there's going to be something huge. And Jesus goes on to say, what I mean is until everything is accomplished. And so Jesus is saying that the letter of the law is not going to disappear until everything is accomplished. It's going to be an earth shattering event. All right. And then he goes on to make a comparison between who will be great and who will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And he says it this way. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and says, for I tell you 
that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it's like, whoa, Jesus, um, hang on a second there, because weren't the Pharisees like the most righteous people? They were the ones, the Pharisees were the ones who followed the letter of the law. They followed the dots and the dashes and the tiniest strokes of the pen. But Jesus is like, no, I'm actually talking about intent. I'm talking about intent. It's not a matter of following the letter of the law. This is about intent. Your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees. If it were about the letter of the law, we'd never be able to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees because nobody was better at the letter of the law than they were. The dots, the dashes, the tiny strokes of the pen, the checking of the boxes. Nobody was better at that than the Pharisees. But Jesus is saying it's, you know, it's actually not about the letter of the law. It's about the intent of the law. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, this is Matthew 5, and the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus goes on to help us to see that, that, he's, in, that he's really talking about the intent of the heart. It's about, you know, what is the disposition of your heart in relationship to the intent of the law? What's the posture of your heart pertaining to the intent of the law? So Jesus helps us to see that, that this is a heart issue that he's talking about. That's the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. It's a, it's a heart issue. It exceeds uh, the, the, the mechanical checking of boxes, this is about our heart. And so Jesus says the law is not going to disappear until everything is accomplished. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said from the cross? It is finished. It is accomplished. And so it's like Jesus saying, you know, until the new covenant is etched in blood, until the new covenant is inaugurated at the cross, until the new covenant is ratified by my blood on the cross of Calvary, until then, I'm not going to tell you to abandon the law, but I am going to tell you that I'm going to bring about the fulfillment of the law through an earth-shattering event that is going to be about accomplishment. During his um, three and a half years of earthly ministry, Jesus would, uh, you know, was all the time helping people to see him in their Bible. And when I say their Bible, I'm talking about our Old Testament. He was always helping. There I am. This is about me. This is pointing to me. Uh, why would he do that? So that people could look into the Old Testament so that they could follow Jesus. This is about following Jesus. Well, what we want to do uh, for the next few minutes of this talk today and uh, next Sunday as well, we want, to, uh, we want to dip our toe into Leviticus chapter 19, which is really a key chapter of Old Testament law. And, uh, you know, as we look through Leviticus chapter 19, we're going to see some laws that are like, hey, that's a good law. That would be a great law for today. We'll see some other laws that are like, nope, um, we definitely don't follow that one. Um, 
And we're going to see that kind of clearly. But to get there, um, I want to talk about the Protestant Reformation just for a second. I'm sure you've probably heard of that phrase, the Protestant Reformation, that is speaking of something that took place about 500 years ago. And um, it was the, the Protestant Reformation. Protestant, you know, the, the base of that word is protest. These were protesters. This was a group of people protesting against the Catholic Church, against the excesses of the Catholic Church, against the corruption of the Catholic Church, the selling of indulgences and things like that. And so some of these Protestant reformers, some of these protesters, um, familiar names like Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, Zwingli, and so on. So some of these Protestant reformers were very keen uh, wanting people to see the Old Testament law in three categories. One category of Old Testament law that the Protestant reformers said is, is ceremonial laws. So the Protestant reformers looked at the Old Testament law, broke it down into three categories, the first of which they said is ceremonial. So these are the kinds of laws about um, how to make a sacrifice, uh, laws about how to be ceremonially clean, or laws about being ceremonially unclean. So these were laws that were really about um, the ceremony of religious worship. Then there was a second category of law, the, the uh, Protestant reformers said, uh, that were civil laws. These were laws of the land um, and laws about uh, punishments for not obeying the laws of the land and, and things like that. And we need to understand that in the Old Testament, this was a, uh, not a democracy, but a theocracy. This was a nation state where uh, the religion and the law of the land were all kind of, uh, you know, rolled up together. And so the Protestant reformers said that these two categories, these two of three categories, these two, uh, ceremonial and civil, are done away with. That they don't apply to us, that they're not for us. They would say that uh, the ceremonial laws are not for us because they're about uh, the sacrificial system which uh, Jesus has fulfilled with his sacrifice. So they would say, based on that, the ceremonial laws are not for us. They don't apply. They're not for today. And so they would say the same about this category of civil law. They would say that we are no longer an earthly nation. We're a spiritual kingdom. And so these civil laws are done away with, not applicable, not for today. But the third category of law, which is moral laws, they said, these are permanent. These endure. And so when you're reading the Old Testament law, the Protestant reformers would say, when you see something that is ethical or something that is moral, well, that endures, that is permanent. And what that has led to, what this has led to, um, primarily in Protestant uh, churches, is a kind of scripture study that seems to skip over some parts and say, well, that's not for today because that's ceremonial or that's civil, but here's a, a moral instruction or here's an ethical instruction, and so that is for today. And so certain, again, primarily Protestant teachers will look at the Old Testament law 
and will say, uh, yes, yes, no, 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 yes, no, no, yes, no, no, uh, something like that. And, you know, admittedly, as you look at the Old Testament law, there, there are categories. Um, I, I think that is the case. But here's the problem with this theory, with this theory of the Protestant reformers. The problem is the law itself, the Torah itself, never neatly subdivides into these three categories. The law does not present itself as having three separate categories. Rather, when you read the Old Testament law, all of these things are blended all together. And there's no clear statement in the law that, hey, this is, this is the Old Testament law. And these two categories, well, they're temporary. And uh, there's going to come a time where they're not applicable. But this third category, well, it remains and it's permanent. Rather, this, um, this, um, this idea of these three categories, with two of them being temporary and one of them being permanent, is the best human reasoning, I guess, of why we want to obey some laws, but not others. As Anabaptists, um, I'm not going to say we've got a better way, but I think we say that Jesus provides us with a better way. Jesus provides us with a better way of walking through the Old Testament law than the Protestant reformers have provided us. Jesus helps us to live out the principle that's embedded in the precept. Let me say that again. What Jesus helps us to do, Jesus helps us to live out the principle that's embedded in the precept. The precept itself is embedded in culture and is time-bound. But the principles embedded in the precepts are timeless and are transcendent. And Jesus invites us to live out the principles that are embedded in the precepts. We said earlier, to follow Jesus is as though we follow the intent of the law. To follow Jesus is as though we follow the principle of the law, not the letter of the law, the spirit of the law. With that in mind, uh, again, what we want to do, uh, and, and we'll stick our toes in this uh, at some point this morning before we wrap up, we'll, we'll take a peek into Leviticus chapter 19. And again, um, we'll see some laws in Leviticus 19 that are like, yeah, that makes sense for today. That's really good. Or, or that one, like not a, not a chance. That seems really odd. Um, but what I think to get there, before we get to Leviticus 19, let, let's do this. Let's just point out very, very quickly, five ways that we can see Jesus in Old Testament law. Five ways that we can see Jesus in Old Testament law. Number one, we can see Jesus in covenant. Covenant is this idea of, of the revealing of God's commitment to us. And we can see Jesus in covenant. I think it's helpful for us to know that the context for Old Testament law is covenant. Before there were the laws, God graced the nation of Israel with covenant. Think of it. What did he do first? He rescued them out of 
Egypt and um, led them and graciously embraced them and provided for their needs and gave them freedom. And so that's, that's, that's the context of covenant. It's the context of God's commitment to these nations. And so the laws are a follow-up to that covenant. And when we understand the covenant, the context of covenant, then it helps us to see that the laws are not necessarily as weird and random uh, as we thought they were. It's the context of covenant that helps us make sense of some of the specificities of the laws. It would be like if I were, let's say I were a single man, not married, and I went down to the beach here at Sabal and uh, saw a woman and I'd never met her before, never had a conversation with her before. And so I just walk up to her and I say, um, you know, uh, I, I want you to uh, just be absolutely committed to loving me and honoring me and cherishing me until death does us part because I am totally, uh, I am totally in on uh, you know, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, uh, uh, in, in sickness and in health. You know, if, if I went up to some random woman and, and said those things, that would be like super weird. Somebody would probably call 911. It would seem random. It would seem creepy. If, but if there was an agreed upon covenantal agreement of marriage, then those things would not seem weird and they wouldn't just seem like random obligations. They would seem like, ah, those are kind of natural things that follow out of that context of covenant. Uh, so you can kind of look at the Old Testament laws similarly. They begin to kind of make sense when you understand the covenant of uh, the, uh, the, the context of covenant. And, and, you know, it's in covenant that we can see, we can see the heart of Jesus. You know, covenant is about the revealing of God's commitment. And so in covenant, we can see Jesus because covenant is on Jesus' heart. It's, it's in, you know, it's in the old covenant itself that comes the promise of the new covenant. The, the old is a precursor to the new. And Jesus talks about the new covenant in his blood. So we can see Jesus in covenant. Second thing, we can see Jesus in Old Testament law in the ethics of the Old Testament law because ethics demonstrate the heart of God's care for people. And so we can see Jesus in, in God's care. We can see Jesus in the Old Testament law in the rituals, like the rituals of the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system and so on. Um, points to the atonement that God would accomplish at the cross through the shed blood of Jesus. So we can see Jesus in that. We can see Jesus in the accommodation um, in the Old Testament law. A few weeks ago, we talked about this thing of accommodation, that God is a God who accommodates. He's a God who stoops and steps into this fallen human framework to stay in relationship with sinful, uh, stubborn people in order to move them along in his redemptive plan. We talked about how God accommodated uh, David. Like David had this insistence on wanting to build a temple. God didn't want it. It wasn't his plan. It wasn't his design. It wasn't his heart. Uh, but God ultimately accommodated David in the temple and God used the temple. 
We talked about how God accommodated the stubborn, sinful nation of Israel with human kings. It wasn't God's heart. It wasn't God's plan for Israel to have human kings. But he accommodated them and he used kings. And the whole sacrificial system, the, the sacrificing of animals was not God's heart. It was not God's plan. Israel, even before the law, was sacrificing animals to goat demons. And so it's like God says, well, since you're stuck on doing this anyway, let's put some parameters around it and let's have it pointing somewhere. And so God accommodates this thing that was part of their history, part of that moment of culture. And we can see Jesus in the accommodation. We can see, think of the cross. The cross really is an accommodation. It's not like God said, hey, you know what? I've got this plan. I'm going to invent this thing called crucifixion, and I'm going to design this cross, and I'm going to nail my son to it, and uh, that's going to be this incredible expression of my love. The, the crucifixion wasn't something God designed. It wasn't his passion. It wasn't his heart. Crucifixion was the method of capital punishment designed by the Romans. That's how the Romans killed people. That was their instrument of capital punishment. But God accommodates that historical reality in that cultural context, and he used that instrument of death and torture to accomplish an earth-shattering expression of love. It's an accommodation. You know, if the Romans had of uh, done executions with an electric chair, we'd all have little electric chairs hanging on chains around our necks. We'd have a big electric chair on the platform here at Sobel Church. The cross was how the Romans killed people, and God accommodated that historical reality and used that instrument of death and torture as the greatest expression of, uh, of accomplishment, an earth-shattering event. We can also see Jesus in the contrasts of the Old Testament law. Uh, and when we're talking about contrast, we're talking about uh, you've got the shadow and you've got the reality. And in the contrast between the two, we can see Jesus. We can see Jesus in the shadows. Okay, let's, let's dip our toe into Leviticus 19 just for a couple of minutes, and, and then we'll leave it off and we'll pick it back up next week. So this is Leviticus chapter 19. This is a very significant chapter of Old Testament law. And uh, this is verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The law, the Old Testament law, is about holiness. So if somebody comes to ask you, Hey, what's the deal with the Old Testament law? You can say, It's about holiness. You know, there's certainly more answer than that, but that is simple and true and very accurate. The Old Testament law is about holiness. Now, holiness means to be set apart for something special, to be set apart for something special. That's the root of the word holy or holiness, to be set apart for something special. So Moses tell the people of Israel that they're to be different um, they've got a special calling. Um, and if they blend too much with the people around them, 
Uh, If they take their cues from the people around them, well, they're not going to fulfill their special calling. And so in Luke 19, or Luke, Leviticus 19, we see um, various specifics about how they were to be holy, how they were to be specially set apart and different. And for instance, let's look at verses 9 and 10. And so uh, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So if you were a Jewish farmer in the days of Moses, in the days of Old Testament law, Uh, When you were harvesting your field, you would leave a border of unharvested land uh, on the edge by the road for the poor. Why? Well, in those days, the the poor, uh, the homeless, would tend to wander rural roads looking for food. And so, um, as the poor wandered these rural roads... Uh, they would be able to, even if you as a farmer have harvested your field, they'd still be able to wander off the road into your field and get something to eat because you've left uh, food. You've left food available on the edges of your field. So we asked the question, well, do we have to obey this law today? Well, is it ceremonial? Is it civil? No, we don't have to ask those questions. We just say, okay, what is the embedded principle in this precept. Is there a transferable principle here that we can follow? And the answer is yes. And the principle is simply this, take care of the poor. Take care of the poor. So you might say, well, okay, I don't leave unharvested crops at the edge of my field because I'm not a farmer and I actually don't have any fields, so am I not following this principle then? Or I am a farmer and I'm not leaving unharvested crops at the edge of my field. Does that mean I'm not following this principle? Do I still have to obey this? Well, the answer is no. In part because, you know, today the poor don't tend to wander rural roads uh, in search of food. Today, the poor tend to um, gather in more urban settings in towns and cities and, and so on. And so this very same principle of prioritizing the poor can still apply today, but in a different way. And it can still apply whether you're a farmer or whether you're not a farmer. It, it actually applies To follow Jesus is as though we are following the principle of the law, as though we're following the intent of the law. Jesus invites us to follow the the principles that are embedded in the precepts. It's not about the letter of the law. That disappeared with the earth-shattering event of the cross when Jesus says it's accomplished. But the principle remains. And you know, we can see Jesus in that because we know that the heart of Jesus is with the poor. We're going to leave it here for today, but um, 
Let me just say, uh, spoiler alert, two weeks from today, uh, Pastor Dave is going to read for us from Matthew chapter 25, which is an amazing chapter of scripture where we really see the heart of Jesus for the poor. And Jesus says in that chapter, you know, if you, if you give a cup of cold water to somebody who's thirsty, or if you feed somebody who's hungry, or if, if you clothe somebody who's naked, if you visit somebody who's in prison, if you help somebody who's sick, if you show hospitality to somebody who's a stranger or a foreigner, Jesus says it's as if you're doing it to him. Jesus says he, he shows up in the poor, in the marginalized. Jesus takes very, very personally how we treat the poor and those on the margins. That's his heart. And he invites us to have that same principle of caring for the poor. And that's the principle that we see embedded in the precept here in Leviticus 19. Well, we want to do some more of this uh, next week, looking at some, some other uh, laws, looking for the principles in the precepts in uh, Leviticus 19, and we'll pick that back up next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we've just looked at just a little bit of Leviticus 19, and we see you. And we want to see you more and more and more. In these last few weeks, we've looked at Genesis chapter 1, and we saw you, Jesus, the living Word of God who calls all things into existence, including us. We looked at Genesis 3, and we saw that you, Jesus, utterly defeated Satan. You did it at the cross, crushed him. We looked at this thing of accommodation, and it just reminded us, Jesus, how you um, loved us so much that you stooped and you left the glory of heaven. You stooped and came here humbly as a servant, and you told us how to live, and you showed us how to live. You loved us to death, and you rose to life validating that everything you said is absolutely true. We looked in Psalm 22 and we saw you, Jesus, and we saw that you feel with us. You feel, you know what, it's, what it feels like to feel forsaken, to feel forgotten. And we looked in Zechariah, and we saw that you, Jesus, you came and you ended religion in a single day when you said from the cross, it is finished. We looked at Isaiah 53 and saw that you, Jesus, are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our sin, my sin. And we just looked here in Leviticus 19 and Jesus, we see your heart. And we love your heart, Jesus. Your heart is with the poor and the hungry, the stranger, the prisoner, the naked, the thirsty, the sick, the least, the last, the left out, those experiencing injustice. You take very personally how we treat those on the margins. 
And so we say here at Sobel Church and SCF Online, we say we want to become like you, Jesus, more and more and more. You are our life. You are our strength. You hold all things together. You're our redeemer, our rescuer, our savior. You are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You are Prince of Peace. You're the way, the truth, and the life. We bless your name, Jesus. We praise you because of who you are and all that you've done. And so we today just offer to you all that we have. We offer it to you freely today in the quietness of this moment. Lord Jesus, we love you. Amen. God bless. See you next time.